welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. It's my pleasure to introduce the essay speaker, Patrick H. from San Diego. Good evening. My name is Patrick, and I'm a sexaholic. I'm very grateful to know that I'm a sexaholic today. I'm very grateful to know that there is a solution in the 12 steps of Sexaholics Anonymous. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come before you tonight and share my experience in Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, I want to make clear that what I'm sharing is only my experience. I do not speak for SA, and I do not intend by sharing my experience to uh, indicate how anyone else should practice their SA program. I also should tell you that I'm known for being deadly serious, uh, bordering on being humorless. (laughs) In that regard, I remember a meeting where I was called on to share, and since I knew that most of the people in the meeting knew me and knew my nature, I sort of sensed they were hunkering down for a, a good, serious share. And I don't know what got into me, I don't know what came over me, but I decided to lead off my share with a humorous story, a, a joke. And uh, <laughs> you may have noticed that whenever something really shocking happens, time seems to slow down. Well, the two seconds after I told that joke seemed to last about ten minutes. And in that two seconds that seemed to last about ten minutes, there was this look of shock and bewilderment on the face of the people in the group, uh, as if they were saying, you know, what the heck was that? (laughs) And I think they heard the joke, but they saw it coming out of my mouth, and so they weren't really sure that they heard what they thought they heard. And they were too polite to whisper, but I really sensed that they were dying just to ask the person next to them, did Patrick tell a joke? And at the end of that two seconds, it seemed like ten minutes, there was this collective nervous laugh that came up from the group. Something like you laugh when something really shocking has happened and you don't really know how to take it. Sort of like, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I just wanted to warn you that uh, there may not be much humor in my sharing tonight. And I am serious about my recovery in SA. Um, I believe that if I do not recover from sexaholism that I will die. I believe I will either die at my own hands to avoid the misery of this disease. I will either die by contracting uh, some other fatal disease or I will die at the hands of someone else 
by placing myself in a circumstance where someone else kills me. And so I'm very serious about my recovery in SA because it is a matter of, of life or death for me. Now, I'm going to be referring to three different books at times in my sharing, and many of you know of these, but just for those of you who may not, I'm going to be referring to the White Book, which, as we know, was published by Sexaholics Anonymous. I'm going to be referring to a book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous, which is published by AA and is sometimes referred to as the Big Book. And I will sometimes refer to it as the Big Book. And I'm also going to be referring at times to a book entitled The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions. And this is another book published by AA that's sometimes referred to as the 12 by 12. And I will also refer to it as that in my, in my sharing. Now I understand that the theme of this conference is absolute surrender. And that's a very important topic for me. The White Book says that surrender is the key to this spiritual program. It says that surrender is a summary of its very essence. So if surrender is the key to this spiritual program, then it is certainly an important topic and it's worth discussing at this conference. Now, there's a chapter in the White Book that talks about surrender. And it says surrender consists of the practice of steps one, two, and three. So, what's the big deal? You know, what's the problem? Just do it. Huh? Well, maybe working steps one, two, and three were easy for you, but they haven't been for me. It took me 33 years to take step one. One of the reasons it took me so long to take step one was that in the beginning I had no idea that I was a sexaholic. I had no idea that I had the disease of sexaholism. All I knew was that I had discovered that acting out allowed me to escape into, uh, to escape from reality and to have a sense of numbness. And I really loved that experience. And I wanted it as often as possible. And I tried to have it as often as possible. About the same time that I discovered that aspect of acting out, I discovered pornography. And pornography just lit a fire inside of me. You know, the way I was raised, I would never have considered even stealing a candy bar from a grocery store. But I never thought twice about going into a store and stealing pornographic pictures from the magazines. In time, after acting out and beginning to experience pornography, I also began to experience some other new feelings. I began to feel detached and disconnected from my friends. I began to feel inferior. I began to feel like I didn't fit in. I wasn't good enough. I began to just feel uncomfortable around other people. And I found that if I acted out and retreated into that world of, of uh, escape from reality, that it didn't bother me as much. Because when I escaped from reality, I didn't need anyone. I didn't care about being detached from anyone. 
And when I acted out, that numbness took care of and eliminated all that discomfort, that not feeling good enough, not fitting in, uh, not being comfortable around people. Now, I also began to learn that just as acting out sort of dulled that pain of being detached, that when I had a sexual experience with a woman, it had the same effect. In fact, the only time I ever felt connected with, with any human being was when I had a sexual experience with a woman. But what I experienced was that after I had this sexual experience, I very soon lost interest. And I had to go on to the next person to have the same experience. And so the pattern of my early acting out my early sexaholism was a lot of acting out with myself and a lot of very short-term relationships with women. I met my first wife in Europe, and just because of the circumstances, I didn't go through that normal process of meeting someone, acting out with them, and then losing interest. And about a year later, she was living in the U.S. with me, and we were married, and and then the process, you know, unfolded just like it had in the past. In a couple of months, you know, I just had no interest in her. I had retreated back into my own acting out. And she was beginning to complain that I was detached. There was no intimacy in our relationship. You know, when we had sex, it just seemed like a chore to me. And it, and it did. There were also other problems due to my sexaholism. Because I felt so detached and isolated from people, we had no friends. And I, I felt that, that triad of negative feelings that the big book talks about. I felt restless, irritable, and discontented. And so I wasn't much fun to be around. And after a year of that, she'd had enough. She left, and we got divorced. I went back to my old pattern, acting out, short-term relationships with other women. I met my second wife, and I thought, you know, she was the one. I was still thinking that when I felt that surge of lust inside of me, that, that chemistry, that that really meant, you know, this was the woman for me. And, um, and somehow this would be different. And so... I got married the second time, but, you know, the same old pattern unfolded just the same as the first time. And soon I was acting out on my own. She was complaining about intimacy in the relationship. And by now I'd had about two years of recovery in AA. And so I had a little clarity of mind. And so when I heard the same complaints from my second wife that I'd heard from my first wife, I began to think, you know, maybe it's not just them. Maybe there is something wrong with me sexually. Maybe it does have something to do with my acting out. And so I thought I would try an experiment. I said, I'm going to just not act out for a while and see if the relationship improves. And so on day one, I made that decision. But on day two, I found myself acting out again. And so then on day two, with greater resolve, I said, okay, this time, I'm going to stop acting out, and I'm going to see if the relationship improves. But on day three, I found myself acting out again. And it hit me that I was just as addicted to lust 
and acting out as I had been to alcoholism, and I realized that I that I was a sex addict of some form. I didn't know anything about SA or sexaholism, but I just knew that just as I couldn't stop drinking, I wasn't able to stop acting out. I saw a therapist and found my way to SA. I went to a couple of meetings at a Tuesday night group in San Diego. And when they read the description of a sexaholic and sexaholism, there was no question in my mind that that I was a sexaholic. You know, it described my life. It described how I acted out, how I felt, uh, what had happened in my life. But unfortunately, it was too late to save the second marriage. And my second wife didn't want to have anything to do with my recovery or any more, you know, stress from my disease. And so she left and the divorce ended. And I stayed sober for about six months. Um, I didn't go to meetings, but I, I was convinced I was a sexaholic. And heck, I had recovered in AA, so if I could stay sober in AA, maybe I could stay sober on my own uh, in SA. And so I stayed sober for about six months. And then I met another woman. Now, you'd think that after two divorces and now knowing that my sexualism was a major contributor to those two marriages, you'd think that I would, and have gone to SA and admitted to myself that I was a sexaholic, you'd think that would have been enough for me to come into SA and recover for good, but it wasn't. Because I met this woman, and she seemed a little different. And I thought, well, it'll be different this time. Um, maybe I can... Thank you. I thought, maybe I can control my acting out, and maybe I just won't act out as much. And it won't have as devastating an impact on the relationship. Well, you know the answer. <laughs> Nothing changed. I got married. And soon after we were married, I was doing the same thing again. I was acting out with myself as often as I could. And now the disease had progressed even further. And now I was experiencing these painful hangovers. So every time I would act out, I'd feel sick, like I had the flu. I'd feel anxious and edgy and irritable. And every time I acted out, I said, that's it. You know, I'll never do it again. I don't want to feel this feeling again. But a day later, two days later, three days later, you know, I was acting out again. Um, that went on for three years. And finally, I suffered a big business loss that was due in large part to my sexaholism. And I I saw by then that there was no way I could stop. I had been trying to stop for three years. It was only getting worse. I was getting more and more miserable. And I was sure to lose this third marriage. And so I finally reached that point, that point that the big book in the 12 by 12 talks about, that point of complete defeat. Or in the white book, in step one, it says, I give up. You know, And that's what happened. I just said, I give up. And thank goodness, S.A. was still alive in San Diego. And I went back to that same Tuesday night meeting that I'd been to six years before. And I got the white book. 
and I read the white book. And the white book said that the principles of Sexaholics Anonymous are based on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that gave me some hope. Because I knew I had recovered from alcoholism through the 12 steps. And I thought, if it worked on my alcoholism, maybe it'll work on my sexaholism. But you know, those 12 steps still seemed kind of intimidating. There was a lot of work there, and I wasn't sure if I could really do them with my sexaholism. And it reminded me of a a, a meeting, a 12-step meeting in another program, where the, the leaders of the program were all big, burly guys with beards and long hair and speak really rough. And they start each meeting by saying, the good news is there is a solution. The bad news is we're it. (laughs) And when I looked at those 12 steps, I thought, well, you know, maybe this time I don't have to do them just the way they're suggested. Maybe I could kind of customize the steps to my own liking. And I remembered that story about another addict who was looking at step eight and step nine. And, you know, step eight and step nine talk about making a list of all the people we've harmed and then making amends to them. Well, this addict was looking at those two steps and didn't like them the way they were phrased. And so he rephrased them to his own liking. And he came up with this version. We made a list of all the persons we had harmed and humbly asked God to remove them. (laughs) But fortunately, I soon found that if I was willing to follow the essay program, the steps really weren't that intimidating. And I, I didn't have to. Uh, avoid doing them just as they were suggested. And one of the things that helped uh, lose the intimidation factor of the steps uh, was I heard in the meetings that I didn't have to do the steps on my own. I heard that I could find another sexaholic who had taken the 12 steps and ask that sexaholic to take me through the steps. And I heard that person was called a sponsor. And so... I looked for someone in the meetings who seemed to have a good life, who seemed to be at peace, who was sober, someone who, you know, had what I wanted. And I asked them to be my sponsor. And that sponsor helped me a lot with my concern about the steps. Because he said, don't worry about, you know, these later steps. We're going we're gonna to take these steps one at a time. And each time you take a step, it's going to prepare you for the next step. And the next, and the next step. So when you take step one, it's going to prepare you for taking step two. And when you take step two, it's going to prepare you for taking step three. And so he said, let's not worry about what's ahead. Let's just focus on the step in front of us. And, and that was a process that I started. Now, when I started taking these steps, I wasn't thinking about the surrender. I wasn't thinking about anything as sophisticated as the notion of surrender. First of all, I was only on step one, and if surrender is the practice of step one, two, and three, then I can't very well practice it uh, at step one. But in some ways, I was beginning the process of surrender because I had surrendered to the fact that I could not do this on my own. 
I had tried for six years to stop on my own, and I wasn't able to stop. And I had surrendered to the fact that if I was going to stop, I needed to go to meetings. I needed a sponsor. I found that even that wasn't enough because I got hit with lust waves when the sponsor wasn't there, and it was between meetings. And I found I had to get on the phone and talk to another sexaholic to stay sober. And so I was working on the process of, of surrender. And there was something about step one that helped me uh, with step one. The big book told me that I was bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And that made sense to me. Because I remember when I first discovered pornography, I remember showing it to a friend of mine who wasn't a sexaholic. And this is something that, you know, it was like I was showing him buried treasure or something. And when he saw it, it was kind of interesting, but then he went on with whatever he was doing. But, you know, I can remember that picture that I showed him 33 years ago, just like I'd seen it yesterday. So I realized that I physically was different. I responded different to sexual stimuli and to acting out. And I realized that, like the big book told me, that no matter how long I stayed sober, I was going to respond the same way. So even if I could somehow stay sober for 10 years, I couldn't go back to pornography and acting out because physically I was going to have the same reaction. And the big book told me that I was also mentally different, mentally different from my fellows. And the mental difference was that this obsession to act out prevented me from learning in the normal process. So if I put my hand on a hot stove and it burnt me, the normal learning process allows me to avoid doing that again. But after two divorces and realizing I had destroyed those with my sexualism, I it wasn't enough to not go back to acting out in the third marriage. And after realizing that every time I acted out, there was going to be a painful hangover. It wasn't enough to stop acting out for the, the last six years of my, of my acting out. So I realized that I was both mentally and physically different than normal people. And I realized that because of that, there was no hope. I mean, there was no way I was going to overcome this mental obsession. There was no way I was going to change myself physically. And that helped me to finally take step one to just give up. Now, when I got to step two, <clears throat> I knew I couldn't stop because I'd, I'd failed many times in the past. But by the time I got to step two, I had some sobriety. I don't remember what it was, two weeks, three weeks. So by going to meetings and talking to my sponsor and calling other sexaholics, somehow I was staying sober because I had never been able to stay sober one day on my own. Something was keeping me sober. There was some power greater than myself at work. I didn't know what it was. And I was real happy that when I read step two of my sponsor, it didn't say I had to know what this power greater than myself was. I didn't have to understand it uh, or know what it was. All I had to know was that there was some power greater than myself. And I knew that because I was staying sober and I couldn't have ever done that on my own. <clears throat> Now, when I got to step three, again, the third step and the process of surrender 
as the White Book describes it, it seemed like it should have been pretty easy. I mean, after all, it's just turning my will and my life over to my higher power. But you know, when I got to step three, I tried that and nothing happened. I Nothing got turned over. I was still full of myself and I didn't I didn't feel anything. The white book says that when I surrender in that step three, I make a connection with a higher power. And the 12 by 12 sort of says the same thing. In step three, it says, when I take step three, I allow the entry of that higher power into me. But when I try to take step three the first time, I didn't feel anything enter into me. And I'm really happy that I didn't stay on step three until I did, because if I had, I'd probably still be there or I'd be dead. You know, my sponsor said, just do the best you can and then let's move on to the other steps. And as we moved on to the other steps, I began to understand why I hadn't been able to take step three. I went back and I read step three in the 12 by 12, and it said that what was blocking me from taking step three was self-will. And then in the big book, in step three, it said I couldn't remove that self-will with my own willpower. I couldn't just pound on the table and say, by golly, I'm done being self-willed. The big book said I had to have God's help. And that was my problem when I first tried to take step three. I didn't have a connection with a higher power yet. But as we went on through the steps, as my sponsor took me beyond step three into step four, five, and beyond, I began to sense what the white book and all the other books talk about, some presence of a higher power, some power greater than myself. And I began to be able to use the tools of the other steps. I began to use steps six and seven to chip away at that self-will, not on my own, but through God's power, to ask God to remove that self-will on a daily basis. And that self-will began to diminish slightly. And as it diminished, I was able to take step three because there was less self-will blocking me and more room for God to enter in. And my sponsor took me through the rest of the 12 steps. And I was able to stay sober. And I had some peace in my life. And I was able to take step three a little better. But that wasn't the end of my journey because I found that some days I could take step three and some days I couldn't. Some days I didn't have much lust and if I did have a lust attack I could handle it. And some days it seemed like I couldn't. Some days I was at peace, some days I wasn't. There was just a lot of up and down in my recovery. <clears throat> and so I went back to the books that my sponsor had taken me through to see if there was something more that I had been missing. And so I went back through the 12 by 12 in the big book. And I saw something in the preface to the 12 by 12. And in the preface it says, the 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature, when if practiced as a way of life, will expel the obsession to drink or lust in my case, 
and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And that phrase, if practiced as a way of life, just really struck me. Because I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't know how do I practice the steps as a way of life. I didn't know if I was doing it or not. Um, but I thought maybe there was a key there. And then as I read through the big book, I saw in step 11 that it said that everything that I had gained up to step 11, I could lose if I didn't go on to step 12 and help other sexaholics. It said faith without works is dead, that if I just got to step 11 and found this higher power and had a relationship with it, but didn't go on and carry that message to another sexaholic and allow him or her to recover, that I could lose everything I gained in that first 11 steps. And so I began to see there was something important about this connection between the steps. And then when I got to step 12, it just became so clear, because in the 12 by 12, it says on the first page of step 12, when we reach step 12, we begin to practice all 12 steps of the program so that we and those among us can experience emotional sobriety. Things are, first of all, I saw this notion of practicing all 12 steps every day. And I thought, how do I do that? And I saw this word emotional sobriety, and I'd never seen that before. I knew about physical sobriety. I knew about staying sober, not acting out. But I never thought about emotional sobriety. And as I think about it, it kind of ties in to this concept of surrender. Because when I am able to surrender, when I am able to take step three and allow the entry of my higher power, I experience sobriety and I experience peace of mind. And I believe that is what step 12 is talking about when it talks about emotional sobriety. I believe it's talking about that peace that comes when I am able to take step three fully and allow my higher power to come into me. But it tells me that I can only do that if I practice all 12 steps of the program as a part of my daily life. And, you know, it started to make sense to me because I started noticing that on the days when I was having trouble with lust, I wasn't practicing all the steps. Maybe I hadn't prayed and meditated that day. Maybe the night before I hadn't worked a tenth step. Maybe I wasn't working with a sexaholic at all, wasn't sponsoring anybody. Maybe I hadn't taken step one that day. And I began to think that maybe if I could practice all 12 steps of these programs on a daily basis, that I wouldn't have that inconsistency, that maybe I could have maintained my ability to surrender, if you will. And so my, my challenge became to try to discover how to practice all 12 steps of this program on a daily basis, because I began to think that that was the key, that was the surrender, that was the key to my surrender, because it's self-will is blocking the higher power, and I need a higher power <laughs> to change, then 
the only way I can find, I'm talking in my own experience, the only way I find that higher power is through the practice of all these steps. I don't know how it works, but I just know that any time I'm not practicing one of these steps, I have less peace. It's harder to maintain my sobriety. And so, I've come upon a way to practice all 12 steps of the program as a part of my daily life. I don't speak for SA. I don't suggest that anyone else should do this. I'm just here to share my own experience. In the morning, I remind myself that I'm powerless over lust and my life's unmanageable. And I visualize an episode that reminds me of that. And then I remind myself that there is some power greater than myself that can return me to sanity. Something's keeping me sober. And that's steps one and two. And then I just try to turn my will and my life over to this higher power. That's steps one, two, and three. And then I skip four and five. I'll come back to that. Then I take steps six and seven. I say I'm ready to get rid of self-will. I don't want it anymore. That's step six. And in step seven, I ask God to remove it. That's step seven. Then that day, I try to go to a meeting. If I go to a meeting and I can share at the meeting, I've taken step 12. Or if I can work with another sexaholic, I've taken step 12. And in taking those first three steps and steps six and seven in the morning in kind of a prayerful mood, I've taken step 11. Then at night, before I go to bed, I take step 10. And if the way I read the big book, the way it says to work step 10, it's basically working step 4 through 9 in one step. And so if I do those things each day, I have practiced in my own way all 12 steps of the program. And what I get from that is not uh, sainthood, because <laughs> I am not a saint. I do not do it perfectly by any means. But I began to find that it's easier to surrender. And when I don't practice all of those steps, when I find I'm not working with any sexaholic, I'm not sponsoring anybody, I'm not praying and meditating every day, I haven't worked step 10 for a month, I haven't taken step 1, that's when I start having problems with my sobriety and my serenity in the program. And the good news is that those 12 steps are right there, and all I have to do is go right back and look at it and say, which one am I missing? And start doing it again. I am so grateful to this program. I have a good life today. I haven't had to act out in a few years. For the most part, I'm at peace. I have a wonderful relationship with my third wife, a close relationship, an intimate relationship. Everything about my life is good today. But I haven't done any of it on my own. It's all been through this higher power that I found through the practice of these 12 steps and through the practice of surrender. And I'm just so, so grateful today that I know I'm a sexaholic. I know I have this disease. And I know what the solution is. Even though I don't work it perfectly, I know what the solution is. So when things aren't going well, I can go back to it and get back on the beam. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you here tonight, and I wish you all the best in the conference.
would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.